Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ, and we'll be looking at a message entitled, When to Use Our Rights. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 to 14, and join Dr. Newfeld now. In some churches, the pastor's salary is quite an issue. In some churches, the pastor's salary is openly indicated in the budget made available to every church adherent and one of the items that gets voted on by the membership in the church's annual general meeting. Now, in that case, it's fair game to come to the microphone on the floor and comment on whether you think it's too much or too little. And some people will say, didn't you know that there are people who are struggling financially? And the implication is that Maybe our pastor should struggle financially just like some others do. But however these matters work out, whether positively or negatively, for pastors almost always, he feels himself utterly humiliated in the process. Now, a great many churches have a very different view on this matter. That is, how they treat the salary, whether publicly or only in a closed-door meeting with financial officers of the church present. But today, I don't want to talk about those issues in and of themselves, but only to point out that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we really have a passage about paying Christian leaders. But before I dive right in, a couple of comments about the background of the passage. The first is that the context of this passage is about freedom, and and we've noticed that Paul has claimed that as an apostle and as a Christian leader, he acts like a free man. He feels the freedom to carry out his ministry. But there's another background to this passage, and it has to do with the general attitude that the Corinthian Christians had about money. Let me try to explain that. When Paul wrote the Philippians, which is located in the north of Greece, he tells them that in their region, and he says it in Philippians 4, 14 to 20, that no church entered into partnership with him in terms of giving financially except the church of Philippi. They had given so sacrificially that Paul was moved to remind them that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. God, he says, is going to take care of you. But in Corinth, which is located in the south of Greece, the situation was just the opposite. Paul had told them of an opportunity to give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and like always, the Philippian Christians had stepped up to the plate. But in Corinth, they had promised to give, but when it came down to it, they they just didn't come through. So Paul had to tell them, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's true, but the Corinthians loved giving sparingly. They loved a sparing giver. And so I think it's fair to say that the Corinthian Christians were cheap. And when they gave, if they gave at all, they gave out of their excess, whereas others gave sacrificially. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that one of the first questions the Corinthian church asked of Paul was, just how much do you make for a living? I mean, what are we paying him? Is he overpaid? And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 9 verse 3, Paul begins with the statement, this is my defense of those who would examine me. He means examine him in regards to whether they should pay him for his ministry or not. Now, when we read verse 3, we should be reminded of his previous statement. Am I not free, he writes. Am I not an apostle? He means that he is free to insist on the wage of an apostle, but he's also free if he so personally desires to not insist on his right to receive a salary. 
Now, the reason Paul's writing this way is because of the issue that was tearing believers apart in Corinth. Some believers thought it fine to insist on their rights to eat food offered up to idols while others were being scandalized by this behavior. And so the issue in the church in Corinth had come down to the issue of rights. What are my rights? So in order to illustrate what to do, Paul speaks about his rights and how he dealt with things that were, well, a lot more important than the occasional meal at a temple restaurant. So with that as a background, let's listen to what he has to say. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. This is my defense of those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, it's easy to see where Paul was being criticized. There were, in fact, two reasons, and they're quite amazing when we think about it. The first, as we will discuss later, has to do with the fact that he did not draw a salary while he was at work in Corinth. And this is where it gets very strange, but but here you have to get a sense that Paul just couldn't win with these people. Because he worked as a tent maker to support himself and then received funds, probably from the Philippian church, who were constantly stepping up to pay for his ministry, some naturally thought, well, he just didn't need the money and therefore might have thought that his ministry was less important than other ministries. You see what I mean? He just couldn't win with these people. He was criticized if he took a wage, and he was criticized if he didn't. Now, the second reason why he was criticized was that he was not married. You know, we do know that Paul must have been married at some point in time because he was a Pharisee, and all Pharisees were married. Now, I think somewhere along the line, Paul's wife either died and he became a widower, or that she may have deserted him because of his Christian faith. But in either case, he had made a free choice for the sake of the gospel not to get remarried. Am I not free, he asked. I am free not to remarry. And in contrast, the rest of the apostles and other well-known leaders in the early church were married men who also drew a salary. In contrast, Paul's ministry looked weak and less significant. At least that's how it appeared to some of the Corinthian Christians. Now, before we go on, there's a little insight into the life of the early church that I want us to see. Now, first of all, as we've seen, Cephas, who's called Peter, was married. The other apostles were also married. We know that according to Matthew 13, 55, after Mary bore Jesus in her virginity, Mary and Joseph had four other boys named James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. So, in fact, in their family, there were five boys, Jesus being the oldest, and also a number of sisters, although we don't know their names. We also know that James and Jude, two of Jesus' brothers, wrote two of the New Testament books that James also became an influential leader in the early church. We also sense that they, too, were married. I hope you're getting a pattern here. For those who teach that Mary was forever a virgin or that church leaders must remain celibate, well, that simply does not reflect New Testament Christianity. Married ministers who draw a salary for their ministry was the norm. But, and this is also key, even though that was the norm, that was not mandated. There was freedom for Christian leaders to remain single and celibate, and that's the freedom that Paul engaged in. I think that the argument for a celibate priesthood came out of a number of factors. 
You know, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, that passage was misapplied where Paul said, you remember, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman and then commends marriage for those who are given to sexual temptation. So some thought Paul is saying that marriage is for those who are not as spiritual as others. Again, I hope you see that what is missing in the argument that insists on either marriage or insists on celibacy, what's missing is freedom. But that matter being set aside, please notice that Jesus was not married, neither was Paul, but that singleness was not mandated, but was rather left for every minister of the gospel to freely choose for himself. And so Paul is saying that he had the right to a wife, but that he chose for the sake of the kind of ministry that he had, which involved, as you know, moving frequently and included exceptionally long hours, included a great deal of pressure and persecution, the facing of death often. Paul must have felt that given his situation, that singleness was a much better option for him. And so being free, he chose that option. And so when he says that he has a right to a believing wife, he means to say that anyone in Christian leadership has a God-given right to be married or not to be married. But there's another right that he has as well. He has the right to draw a salary that is commensurate with his work. Now, why does he insist on that? Now, as we're going to see as we continue to read through this passage— that this freedom given to Paul is given by the scripture. See, Paul will not allow the expectations of others to limit his freedom. And so Paul calls for, I'd say, a liberated Christian minister who can freely choose his marital and family status as well as function in a number of different economic situations. See, he allows for no mandatory vow of poverty or of slavery or of celibacy or any other form of rules that are not found in the scripture. He believes that God's leaders should not be enslaved, but should be free. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations, coast to coast, can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift, Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Corinthians 9, 7 to 14, the Apostle Paul gives five reasons why local churches made up of followers of Jesus have an obligation to financially support their leaders. Now, I might also add here that all of God's people are blessed when their leaders are not beggars, but are able to use their salary wisely in a way that's instructive for all of God's people. I'll say more about that in my next address. But for now, 
Let's look at those five reasons why churches should pay their leaders. The first reason comes from verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, from that text, let's set out our first reason to pay Christian leaders because it's common human practice. None of us expect soldiers or farmers or workers who labor in any area to do so at their own expense. Just to be clear, most pastors I've spoken to don't view their salary as compensation, but as a gift that frees them to full-time service. But for Paul, the one who tends the flock is entitled to some of the milk, and the one who labors at preaching and teaching and discipling and leading, tending the flock, that person is entitled to a wage. Okay, let's move to our second reason of five, why Christian leaders should receive financial compensation. It's found in in verses 8 to 10. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. You know, there have been those who have criticized Paul on this point. They claim that he abused the Old Testament by taking a passage about muzzling oxen and applying it to paid Christian ministry. But interestingly enough, if you read the entire chapter, that is Deuteronomy 25, out of which this text comes, that entire chapter is about laws that promote dignity and justice for human beings. In other words, Paul is applying this text exactly rightly, and my understanding is that's exactly how that text was used among the rabbis of Paul's day. So why pay your pastor? Well, first, because it's a common human practice, and second, because Scripture, that is the Old Testament, teaches this very thing. But let me digress from this text for a moment and ask, but does the New Testament also speak specifically to the payment of teaching elders? Well, yes, it does. So let me put it in here. A third reason why to pay teaching elders is because it's taught also in the New Testament. Now, I know Paul doesn't mention it here in this text, but he does mention it elsewhere. Now, the reason I bring this in right now is because a great many Christians today are not satisfied with Old Testament references alone. What does the New Testament teach on the issue? So listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So in answer to what double honor means, well, clearly, Paul has in mind a salary that is commensurate with the term honor. Or listen to his words in Galatians 6, verse 6. He says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, we have a reinforcement of the obligation of those who are being taught that they must financially remunerate those who are doing the teaching. But the New Testament isn't naive, you know. It is possible because wages are involved that Christian leaders begin to think of their leadership and ministry as a job or a profession. You know, some time ago, I was shown a manual that related to Christian ministry in which the entire intent of the thing was to show that Christian pastoral ministry is a profession. So the pastors are professionals, kind of like lawyers and doctors and accountants. And it went beyond that to define the pastoral profession in terms of power relationships. 
and said that when pastors form friendships with members of their congregation, they are in fact violating professional standards, kind of like a therapist being the friend of his or her client. Now, I thought again about the words that the Bible uses to describe its leaders. Words like elders, and then there are deacons, and that simply means a servant, and then shepherds. I mean, what are those words? Well, those are family words, words that are used to describe intimacy of love and relationship. You know, teaching elders are not professionals, but bear the call to to lay down their lives for the gospel and for the flock, willingly accepting a call that might well consume them. You know, it's precisely this that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, when he speaks of the task of shepherding and then adds words like not under compulsion and then willingly, not for shameful gain and then eagerly. I mean, the point being that pastors are called upon to bear the cross of Christ and to follow his example and pay the price for the well-being of the flock. See, once we professionalize the ministry, I think we've lost sight of Jesus. I find the word professional and the word congregants as if they were clients to be deeply offensive to the calling of Christ. But I'm about to get on a hobby horse and and I should not. I have been saying that there are five reasons why we should pay your teaching elder. I mean, first of all, payment is a human practice. Second, Payment is in the Old Testament. Third, it's also in the New Testament. And fourth, according to verses 11 and 12, it's right and it's just to do so. Let's read verses 11 and 12. If I have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? I remember the first time I heard my dad tell me that nothing is free. Now, perhaps I was leaving the lights on in some room in the house that I wasn't in, or perhaps it was when I informed them that we should get a horse on the farm, or or perhaps he was just explaining to me the economics of living. I don't remember, but I do remember him saying it. He wanted me to know that he had been paying my bills. He didn't want me to feel bad about that. He was just trying to engender in me a sense of the way things are. He wanted me to be thankful and grateful, and he wanted me one day to shoulder my own responsibility and become a giver just like he had been to me. You see, the same is true of the spiritual realm. I know many of us say, but my salvation is free. Well, here's my answer. Free for whom? I mean, not for God. For God, this thing called our salvation was purchased at the highest price imaginable. Read and meditate Philippians chapter 2, the hymn of Christ's sufferings, and you'll see that our salvation is not free. Rather, it is freely offered to us. But some have the sense, therefore, that, you know, that everything is free. You know, I'm reminded of David in the later years of his life. He had sinned against God and a plague was sent. And in order to stop the plague, he goes out to build an altar and to sacrifice to the Lord and as an act of confession and faith and worship. And he comes to a man named Aruana the Jebusite, and asks if he can build an altar at the threshing floor where his wheat is harvested. And Aruana looks at the king and says, take the threshing floor for free, my king, and build an altar and worship the Lord. And 2 Samuel 24 verse 24 says, but the king said to Aruana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offering to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. See, the same is true for worship and for teaching ministry that you're listening to. 
or to any Christian ministry. It is just and right that we all share both the benefit and the burden together. It is not right to worship the Lord that which costs us nothing. Now, the last reason to pay your minister, because God has commanded it. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, those are five profound reasons why believers need to reimburse their teachers. But I've deliberately left out that last part of verse 12, which I'm going to read now. Paul says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And all of that to get back to Paul's freedom. To a church that demands their rights, Paul says, I too have rights. I have a right and you have not given to me. I could demand it of you, but I have decided to use my freedom to maximize gospel effectiveness, even though that has cost me money. And that brings us back to the issue of freedom. We're never free if all we're doing is demanding our rights. We're completely free if we're asking, how can my freedom make the gospel of Jesus Christ look ever so good? That's what Paul did, and that's what we should do as well. If you want to be truly free, ask yourself, how can I use my freedom for the glory of God and the winning of people to Him? Ask those questions first, and you will be truly free. John, an interesting message today. And you know, our year end has just gone by, so I got to ask you the question. Is this just all about getting money from people for ministry? Sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Ben, I, I know that whenever when I have spoken about money in the past, you know, everyone has this sneaking suspicion that I'm just trying to, you know, raise money or budget struggling or something of that nature. So I want to say that the reason why we talk about money, first of all, is because it's in the Bible. Uh, Jesus probably spoke about money more than anyone else. Uh, but there are also some very forthright passages in the scripture about uh, paying those who preach the gospel. You know, some of us uh, will struggle with that and we'll say, I mean, you know, all the church wants is my money. And my standard line to, to that is often, well, you know, if you go to a grocery store, if you go somewhere else, you never say, well, all they want is my money. As a matter of fact, we have come to recognize that, you know, that we need to actually invest in things that we think are highly important. And so I think this is one of these things. Let's invest God's money. Great word. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. 
More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry update email or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there.